At the Coca-Cola Company, Keurig Dr. Pepper, and PepsiCo, some of our bottles can be remade in a whole new way, using 100% recycled plastic. New bottles using no new plastic, except the caps and labels. Learn more at madetoberemade.org. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for November 22nd, 2018, the sealed indictment edition. I just realized today is the 55th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination, or the day that the show comes out is the 55th anniversary. Who knew? So, I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C. My co-hosts, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times and John Dickerson of CBS This Morning are both in New York. Hello, guys. Happy Thanksgiving. Hello, Hey, David. happy Thanksgiving. Uh, so we're taping on Tuesday. So who knows what could possibly happen between now and uh, when you hear this, which I hope is not during Thanksgiving, but maybe a little bit before or a little bit after Thanksgiving. Or heck, maybe some families have podcast listening over Thanksgiving. Maybe that, It could maybe... save you, you know, having a podcast to tune out to. That is a good point. That's yeah. right. We could be an island of tranquility. Um, or like a bouncy castle of fun. I always think of us as a bouncy <laughs> yeah. castle of fun. That's really what our tagline should That's be. That's what our t-shirt should say. Uh, as you can see, we've got a little pre-holiday joy and boisterousness. We've all been uh, sitting here chit-chatting, but there's serious business to attend to. So we're going to talk about what is going on with the Mueller investigation. Then we're going to talk about the California wildfires, what they portend about life in the next century, and what they portend about life under a drastically changed climate. Then is Facebook evil or just self-delusional? Are there any any are there any other choices? We will discuss. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter, of course. And a reminder that coming up soon, soon after Thanksgiving, we have our conundrum live show at the Skirbel Center at NYU in Manhattan on December twelfth, the Wednesday. Some tickets still left at slate.com/slash/live. Simon Doonan, the delightful Simon Doonan, will be our guest uh, for some of that show. And the conundrum show, of course, is a chance to discuss the really tough issues, the really complicated moral questions and, and life questions that you've been grappling with. So you should send us your conundrums, first of all, um, by tweeting them to us at, at SlateGabFest or emailing them to us at gabfest at slate.com if you want some privacy on them. And uh, I, we noticed someone, uh, some great listener sent around a John Adams conundrum. Did you guys see this? Yeah, I love that one. I love that one. Yeah, for was, so many different that was reasons. So but great. Let, yeah, so but we, let's save that one. Don't well, you? Well, no, think but it's let's so we'll preview it. We won't discuss okay, it. Okay. But it was John Adams writing a letter to Thomas Jefferson asking the question, which is, would if you were attacked ahead, by, yeah, would you rather be attacked by a duck-sized George the Third or a thousand ducks called George the Third? Sorry, go ahead. Um, yeah, I think. It, yeah, it probably would have been. Um, it would be. A hundred Hessian-sized ducks or one duck-sized Hessian. No, it was a letter from John Adams to Thomas Jefferson, and it was asking sort of would you want to live a life where every bit of pleasure is offset by an equal bit of pain? Would that be fair? Like you get a million million bits of great pleasure, but in return you must suffer a million – uh, doses of of pain of agony that is just as painful as the pleasure is pleasurable. It was an interesting question, but I love the idea that the conundrum the conundrum is a form that predates even us, even our ancient show. There are conundrums long before us, so we will we'll grapple with John Adams' conundrum. But please come slate.com slash live to get tickets December twelfth in New York. The Mueller investigation, 
fell quiet for some weeks in the run-up to the election. Still quiet, but wiser heads than I say there are signs, there are omens, there are portents, there are tea leaves, there are entrails to be read that Special Prosecutor Robert Mueller is preparing to unveil a series of indictments in the Russia investigation. Emily, what what is the what is the evidence? Why is this more than just like uh, you know reading a feather that fell from the wing of a, a gull flying over the temple of Athena? I think some of it's just wishful thinking on the part of many people who are more than ready for Mueller to make his move, whatever it may be. So some of the tea leaves being read were just like Donald Trump's apparent foul mood last week, which doesn't seem to me like a enormously differentiated piece of evidence, but it was out there and he started tweeting in criticism of Mueller and denying that his choice for acting attorney general, Matt Whitaker, that he'd had known anything about Whitaker's views of the Mueller investigation, which seems odd since Whitaker had given interviews and written and talked about his views. So that was a little strange. And what else? Then there are all these like secret court filings going on in the courts in the District of Columbia that have been that it's of course people are speculating they're tied to Mueller. They're not some of them are from the Mueller team, but we don't know who they relate to. Um Do we and know so, that some of them are from the Mueller team? Yeah, I think we do know that part. We just don't know who they're about. So well, there was a lot of speculation that some of it might be subpoenaing Trump, trying to get Trump to testify. But then other prosecutors I was talking to said, no, I don't think that's it. It could be something else. So I think there's just a lot of um, desire for action. And then, oh, I guess I left out an important thing, which is that a few people, um, Roger Stone, although he said he was expecting to be indicted a while yeah. ago. Then there's that friend of his, Jerome Corsi. Is Jerome that Corsi. That yeah, guy. Yes. And then the most, um, I would say, salacious details that Don Jr. has been telling his friends that he might get indicted. Now, I have no idea if that's true or not. But, I mean, of course, that is something that the media would um, gobble up and await for with bated breath because it would be a very big deal, obviously. I th- the... Uh one thing I would just a couple of things I would add is the foul mood was that, yeah, he was specifically targeting uh, Mueller. Mueller okay. uh, he So the president has tweeted 50 times about Mueller and the Russia investigation. Does that seem like a lot or a little to you? I think it's a lot. I mean, yeah. well, he I mean should it's be a doing lot because it, it should be zero, right? Because every time he potentially gets himself in trouble. Also, he hadn't done it for a couple of months, right? right? So it was like a return to form. Right. So that's just what I exactly that's because it. That question seems to me touches on the larger norm shifting question of the presidency, which is he the 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 number should be zero. And yet 50, I thought, oh, well, that's not as much as I thought, because you think that he is constantly uh, agitating about how this is a witch hunt. But another tea leaf. Sorry, John, I'm uh, interrupting you. Well, the other the other thing is that the uh, in the um, Rick Gates, the campaign uh, deputy manager and then um, Manafort. There were court filings in which the special counsel said, don't sentence them yet because they're still providing us active information. Little delays, right? right? Suggestive delays like, oh, maybe they don't want to, the government doesn't want to show its hand yet. And then the other report is that Trump's lawyers are almost finishing, almost finished answering the written questions. And so that suggests that's been a long outstanding um, item on Mueller's checklist. So explain, explain the don't show the hands part, because what I thought was that they were delaying the sentencing of Manafort and Gates because they were still actively... Didn't they claim that they were still actively helping with the investigation, which made me think there are like two clocks here. There's the indictments that have already been sealed, 
and I want you to explain that. Do you do that? Do you seal indictments so that, let's say Whitaker comes in and fires Mueller, the indictments are sealed, loaded, and ready to go. So even if he fires them, they still go off. Right. And it means that exactly there could it what it means is that there could be indictments that have already had they're already in the hands of a judge that we don't know about. Right. But but it, but that's not the only reason why you seal an indictment. There might no. be no. lots of other reasons. <laughs> in this case, yes, yes, it might yes, yes. be relevant. No, but yes, no, presumably that's not the actual reason, like yeah. not the proffered reason. But what that's are the real true, reasons? Yeah. What are, what are the other reasons you would do it other than having Mueller having the fear that you might get fired? Well, with Julian Assange, who is not being pursued by the Mueller team, I should make clear that's a separate um, indictment from the Eastern District of New York. It, presumably, it was because they were trying to get him extradited or trying to go get him in some way, and they didn't want him to know that they were trying to go get him. That's another reason you seal an indictment. It's someone you don't have your hands on. You don't want them to flee, although I don't... Assange is where he is in that Ecuadorian ministry. Um, another thing related to this that I was thinking about is that... So we're in this moment right now where Whitaker is the acting attorney general. He does not have confirmation from the Senate. He hasn't been nominated, but Trump is still dangling out there that possibility. And I wonder if that makes this a kind of relatively uh, safe moment or extends the period of safety for the Mueller investigation in the sense that if Whitaker has any prayer of being confirmed by the Senate, he cannot interfere with that investigation. And so if he thinks that that's any kind of possibility he has an incentive to let Mueller be for now. And he uh, there was a report that he told Lindsey Graham that he wasn't going to mess with Mueller, but that's very uh, gauzy. I mean, what is that? Well, it could be true or not true, but even if it's not true, it's interesting that someone wanted that idea out there, whether it was Graham or Whitaker. Right, right, exactly. One other thing we should mention is Michael Cohn was in town on Veterans Day, uh, spotted at the courthouse courthouse or something, which suggests he's continuing to uh, participate. I want to, on your point, Emily, I think it's a really good point, and and it does seem to me that, that Whitaker's going out of his way to at least signal publicly, oh, I'm not going to defang this investigation. I'm not going after it, maybe because he wants the big job or maybe for some other reason. It also, I feel like, and maybe I'm always wrong about this kind of stuff, so take it for what it's worth, that what that, that, that kind of priced into the Trump administration and priced into everything that's been going on is basically that, uh, well, Manafort and Gates are guilty, um, I, you know, we'll go to prison, they don't. No one cares about them. But that Stone and some other sort of Stone figures around Stone and Don Jr. are all going to go down, and that they've sort of accepted. Like that, I'm sure there'll be a vigorous defense of Don Jr. But I think everyone thinks like that dude's that dude's got trouble, and, and that as long as the investigation kind of doesn't stretch much beyond that, as long as there isn't a huge amount of other material in either in time or in scope that it doesn't stretch beyond that, that that that's something the Trump administration can more or less live with. The way I my this is just my gut feeling is they're letting they're letting it happen. They're they're not interfering too much because they're sort of expecting those things. They're expecting Don Jr. and Stone to get indicted, maybe you know other figures around around them. And as long as that's it, they can you know let Mueller issue his report and kind of be done with it, and it won't require some larger interference. And that's why Whitaker isn't threatening it. That's why there's not more noise about it. It's that it's that they're they've sort of assumed that it's not going to stretch much beyond that. Although do they have to, I mean, what they have to worry about now that they didn't have to worry about before is that the, the people who determine what stretches are now in control of the house of representatives, which is that 
Well, not for the Mueller investigation. Well, They're, but the Mueller investigation will present its report, and then the House will be, will respond. So if they indict Don Jr., Don Jr., presumably if there's something to uh, – well, one of the things that he may be in trouble for is not telling the truth to investigators in the House. So that that's one thing that then mushrooms into a bigger problem. But uh, what it – I mean the key thing about Don Jr. is he's at that June meeting with the Russians who are – at the meeting, supposedly uh, coming from the Russian government with dirt on Hillary Clinton. So, you know, will there be proof that Donald Trump knew nothing about that meeting? It, that would be something you could imagine House investigators looking into. And it's not crazy to ask that question. I guess the point is, if Don Jr. is involved, it's a short trip to the president. And the, and the short trip in political distance is really what we need to think about there is could Democrats have an investigation that goes beyond Mueller and says, look, this isn't crazy to, to, to investigate these questions because Don Jr. was so close to his father. Isn't it also just a big deal that the son of the president, who was heavily involved in his campaign, is getting indicted? Right. I just, I don't, I'm like, I feel like we've skipped over that. That does not seem to me something that the Trump administration can shrug off. Right. Yeah. And especially also one of the things is the president, is Don Jr.'s response about what he was doing at that meeting which the president had a hand in, in that, in crafting that public which statement, which was, a, which was what we call not true or, or known in the, in the business as a lie. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It just feels like if, the, if there's not that much more than what we, we the public already know, that's fine. That's a, that's a totally that, that, adequate result. All, that well, it's an outrage. It's outrageous. It's outrageous. I know it's you're wrong. so blasé about this. I'm irritated by your. Uh, I'm irritated by all of it. The premise <laughs> that you can be blasé, and also that there's any reason to think that we know everything. When every time Mueller's issued an indictment, there have been new and juicy facts in it. Mm-hmm. He's being professionally blasé. Well, no, that, that 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 that's a that's a very fair point, Emily. Which is that. The, the investigation has always been ahead of the reporting, which is as it should be. And thank goodness for that. And kind of a miracle also, but given all the leaking. I, I just mean as a, pol- a matter of politics and a matter of like, sh- will this have consequence? Of course, it's consequential for Don Jr. if he goes to prison. And of course, it must be frustrating for the for the president that his son could be indicted and that his buddy Roger Stone could be indicted. But I just don't know as a, as a big political matter. I, it doesn't feel to me that... If that's the if that is the the nut of what the Mueller investigation comes to is what sort of more or less what we already know I'm sure with with you know trailing strands and filigrees elsewhere it doesn't seem to me that that will will fundamentally change how people Americans think about it how whether it, it doesn't it doesn't change uh, doesn't make it likely the president is impeached or removed from office for this. So is your although there are crimi- although there are clearly is- crimes. Well, I mean, so are you saying that unless Trump is indicted or all unless yeah, is your standard unless Trump is indicted and impeached that there are no political ramifications because that seems wrong to me, right? Like first of all, Mueller could write a report in which he lays out all the evidence for obstruction of justice and asks puts it in Congress's court, right? Second of all, the piling up of indictments, including Don Jr., would could matter a lot politically going into 2020, even if Trump remains in office, which I still think he probably will, right? You still have those political ramifications playing out and perhaps a distancing of other elected Republican officials from a president who would appear more and more battered and potentially toxic in 2020. Just picking up on that last point, I I wonder. So what you just described is uh, the way things used to operate in the old world, (laughs) 
No, I, I and <laughs> don't I, quaint I, notion. No, no, I know it's true. No, and 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 I and I, I, I don't and mean to suggest that like I'm to sep- hark back to those old days. Right, right, right. No, and and so what you say makes perfect sense. Except I'm just have fresh in my memory something that happened this week. And we talked about it last week, the, the stickiness of partisanship that allows a norm-shifting president to then bring along huge other institutions, whether it's the Senate or the Republican Party. And this week, the president attacked uh, Admiral McRaven, who was the head of special operations, a 37-year uh, veteran of the services, a Navy SEAL, um, highly respected, uh, led the, the operations that captured Saddam and killed bin Laden. And the president basically uh, responded to McRaven's claim that the president's attacks on the press were the, the greatest threat to democracy by saying, well, he's a, he's a basically a political hack. He's a supporter of Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. The Clinton piece was not true. Yes, he worked for Obama, but that... Uh, Different he, than partisan supporter. Right. And so just the the absolute partisan response from the president as opposed to, say, a previous president who would have demurred and said, well, I respect his service, but I disagree with his opinion. So the Republican Party then starts tweeting out uh, things about McRaven, saying basically like he was on Hillary Clinton's shortlist. So now you have the Republican Party, a party that's traditionally been associated with respecting the military and the people who serve and serve with as much distinction as McRaven did, basically taking the president's line. So you have this shift so back to what you were saying, Emily, the distance is the distance doesn't seem to be created by people. So, you know, Jeff Flake creates uh, distance, but oh he's on God, his way Jeff out. Flake. Yeah. yeah. Although this week he did I say know. he would hold up judges. Yeah, if I'm they, waiting for the yeah. actual judge who doesn't get confirmed because of Jeff Flake's missing vote. And then I will give Jeff Flake some credit. Until then, I don't want to hear about <laughs> let it. Me, let me add one other thing, which is we're highly into the realm of the speculative here because Don Jr. hasn't even been indicted. But... It does seem, David, that one thing that when this all finally comes out, I mean, we must tally the the existing tally, which is that you have the president's former national security advisor, his campaign chairman, his uh, campaign deputy um, that have all been charged. And so his lawyer is charged, you know, his most his fixer. So any new person, especially if that person to engage in the speculation again, if that person has the same name with just a little junior at the end is on top of a pretty big mountain already of, of, of people. And that will create responses from the president, which will have political ramifications because this is obviously something that the president, when he is attacked and, and, and any movement against his son would be seen as that he responds double force. So I think the political ramifications would be the earthquake also created by the president's in response. Last question on this, Emily, it now seems very clear the president will not sit, at least will not voluntarily sit for an interview with the Mueller team. He told Chris Wallace in an interview on Fox that he wouldn't do it. Uh, he is going to answer some of the written questions that were posed to him. Well, he's not answered them. Well, his lawyers, his are, lawyers uh, continue. are going to answer some of the written questions that are posed to him. He had been saying essentially since the investigation started, of course, he would sit down for an interview. He wanted to do it. Do you think that there's any possibility that that we get a subpoena and a kind of compelled testimony here, number one. And number two, was it a pose all the way along that he wanted to sit for an interview? It, ne- it never, it always seemed to me insane to think that he could voluntarily sit for an interview given how mendacious he is. Uh, but right, maybe but I'm wrong. Right, but he's also, you know, a braggart, docio. What's the word? Braggart? He's also Which, a braggart. And, who um, practices braggadocio. Yeah, who practices braggadocio, precisely. And, 
I have no idea whether he really believed he would sit for the interview or was just bluffing. I agree with you that his lawyers would, you know, have laid their bodies down to make sure that he did not do so. I sort of think that subpoenaing the president to sit for an interview is not the hill that Mueller is going to die on because I'm not sure how important it is. I mean, obviously, if you're a prosecutor, you want to ask these questions. You're you are trying to figure out a charge of obstruction of justice in particular, which depends on mindset. And so when you have all these facts you can line up to try to catch someone, you want to ask those questions directly. I also think that if Trump's lawyers don't answer some written questions, Mueller can infer from that that, you know, they don't want to answer them. And unless Trump pleads the fifth, those inferences could be part of an indictment. You could imagine that. I think, though, as I said, that Look, I mean, we already there are already lots of reasons to think that Mueller won't actually indict Trump because of the Justice Department memos that suggest he doesn't have that authority. When he's writing this report, presumably for Congress to consider impeachment, he can explain the answers that Trump did and didn't give. And Congress can make a you know decision either way. And then I guess there's also this sort of question down the road after Trump is out of office, what kind of legal exposure he would have. I just don't. I just. I. I. I know Emily that you're right. Like it's. It's an outrage. It's a terrible. The. The whole. But you're over it. No, it's not that I'm over it. I just don't. I don't know that it. It. it no, I'm not. But I don't mean, yes, fall I'm over. into the trap of like it's, it's just everything a, is meaningless. Like I know not, it feels that way, but we don't have to like. No, we it's, don't it's have an to outrage. Give up. It's an outrage. There's so many outrages. It's just this outrage. That. This outrage has has taken a disproportionate um, amount of people's mental energy and time compared to what it can actually accomplish. Whereas I think the policy stuff is much more important. I think the actual I've come around. I think his personal corruption, the per, the corruption within the administration, is more is more important in a way than this story. Right. The well, corruption really can... speaks to people. It gets people ag- really irritated when you learn that somebody is wasting money on some bullshit. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, I think if you are a liberal who wants the Mueller investigation to be the magic bullet that is going to slay Donald Trump in one second and make him go poof, then you're probably going to be disappointed. Um, it's he that Trump has done a masterful job at making it seem partisan and complicated and uh, like a witch hunt, as he keeps saying, even though Mueller is like the least partisan person walking around in the country. So, you know, they're all of those... Things are true. It has also been true that every time Mueller has actually acted, it's been highly professional and reassuring in its professionalism. So it will be, you know, the best that a highly trained and skillful American prosecutor has to offer. So Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. Today's bonus segment, we're going to talk about whether Thanksgiving is a liberal or a conservative holiday or neither, perhaps. Go to Slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. 
The campfire continues to burn in Northern California while the Woolsey fire is more contained in Southern California. Together, the two fires have burned more than 250,000 acres. That's, I think, about six entire Washington, D.C.'s, if if my math is right. The town of Paradise, really the small city of Paradise, has been destroyed. More than 70 people are dead. About 1,000 people are on a missing persons list just for the campfire. The damage is going to be in the tens of billions of dollars. uh, And it's going to continue to cause people to suffer. The smoke, for example, dangerous smoke has been choking lots of California, including the Bay Area. There will be more fires. The hot and dry conditions will continue. It is a terrible, dangerous, awful situation. And it has a kind of relentlessness. Uh, an earthquake is a single episode, a single incident, which causes tremendous damage. The thing about these fires is they come, they come again, and they take them a long time to get controlled. And they are controlled, and then they reappear. It's they're, they're relentless in this way that's quite awful. So, Emily, start with you. Why is it that there is so much more fire now than there was? Is there so much more fire in California in particular than there was? There is more fire, or at least the biggest fires that are doing the most damage are recent fires almost entirely. There are a few factors. There is climate change, which is raising the temperature just enough to make all this flammable material more burnable, combustible. There are um, old standing fire suppression tactics where all of this material has not been allowed to burn in the past. And so there is more of it. And then there's people and where they live and the fact that there were 27,000 people in Paradise, which Paradise, California, that is. And they were there, you know, kind of heartbreakingly because housing is so expensive in California that this was like a haven for them. But the price they were paying was to be in the path of this fire. And so you know, the one thing that strikes me about these fires, which is also true of hurricanes and other extreme weather events, is the stories are like Armageddon, right? I mean, we see these cars, we see these people, we hear these like terrifying audios of people who literally are in fear that they will be burned to a crisp. And it's like we're returning to some past in which we couldn't count on safety and security and the predictability of American, at least middle-class life can no longer be taken for granted. And there's just something so, I don't know what the word is, like willfully crazy about not addressing particularly climate change and, and thus putting some members of our society at risk of these terrifying events that in most of the rest of Everything we do, we try so hard to prevent. I mean, it reminds me also of gun violence in its way, where, like, the most important thing is keeping children safe, except, like, oh, no, we have all these firearms that hurt people, and that's, like, this um, exposure, that this risk, this vulnerability that we're willing to countenance. And the way we make our peace with it is we just assume it will never be us, like, driving our car with our kids while these, like, telephone wires and logs are burning and crashing down around us. But... When you have to really think about it, it's totally bizarre and terrifying. Well, just one point there, Emily, which is, I, of course, I, uh, I mean, I agree with you, ninety-eight percent, with what you said, and I, you know, I certainly the, the feelings that you express there are, are ones that I share. But I would say that the this period where life as a citizen, life as a human being, was pretty safe and secure, and you didn't have to worry about 
natural disaster or disease or whatever. It's been a pretty brief period. Like yeah. the, the, the secure middle class backstopped by society period. And even in a rich country like America, it's been it's been sort of 50 years. And it's never applied to everyone, too. It's, You're right. But I don't think that we expected it to end. I mean, no, it's no, our lifetime. Right? Exactly. Like, well, I take it for granted. Also, the speeding up of history. So let's say it's been 50 years. The speeding up of history makes it feel uh, it feels to me makes it feel like it was longer in the past. So, you know, all of the devices when I was talking to the director of the CDC, he said, you know, if there's another pandemic, it will strip us down to primitive life because all of the comforts and devices and things we have that uh, are the structure of modernity uh, all go away and they're all useless against this thing. And so you're back to the age where you're knocking rocks against each other to make uh, um and which many of us are not going to farewell. Right. I'm not going to farewell when we are knocking rocks against each other. And exactly. I don't know where anything well, is. Well, but the, this, uh, this is what's this. I mean, I wish we were talking about the Michael Lewis book, the the Fifth Risk. Book. We can talk about the Fifth Risk. Well, we haven't, but we all. Have, I wish we were doing it systematically. Maybe we'll do it systematically one day. But one of the points he makes is that is that sort of the the great value of government is not yeah. necessarily. Okay. Uh, visible every day. It's sort of risks avoided. It's things sure. put off because you you maintain the highways. You uh, because you invest in education, so your population is smarter. You have uh, you maintain uh, adequate supplies of that vaccine, right. um, and that is what is that's what's alarming. And that there it's are not, all these career yeah. professionals whose whole yeah. job is to yeah. protect you and stave yeah. off those dangers, and they are being properly husbanded as a resource right by the federal government and taking them for granted and that that whole apparatus and mission for granted is such an enormous mistake one thing i would add to the list that that emily gave was the santa Ana winds which are part of what uh uh, create the devastation here at one point the winds were blowing so uh, hard that the fire was not actually burning the trees it was burning it was blowing sideways and so the fire was burning the cars and the homes and the trees around were were surviving um just to the point about severity since records were kept in 1932 the 10 largest fires have been since 2000, five since 2010, and two uh, of the largest fires in California history happened this year alone. Right. So that just and the and the uh, to the climate point, I think we're up two or three degrees in in California. Then, then uh, I don't know what the baseline for that is, but it's two to three degrees more uh, in temperature. Can we talk about affordable housing in California? Because you know there was and could still be a proposal to relax um, zoning rules so that more affordable housing can be built along transportation networks, like in San Francisco region, um, BART, which is, you know, the metro effectively. And you could imagine a Cal- a parts of California where you, you know, build up, you build more densely, you allow people to move into the cities by taking advantage of these transportation hubs. And the people who can only afford to live like up on a hill where it's dangerous get to come down from the hill and down from the fire danger. If Gavin Newsom, the new governor of California, is really serious about helping California and making it a better place to live, this would be a huge thing that he could do to address inequality, which is an enormous problem in California. Yeah, it's, what, you know what is crazy about this is I mean, obvi- climate change is not a problem that the governor of California can fix on his own. Rising heat is not a, a problem that the governor of California can fix or the legislature of California can fix or the legislature of the United States even can fix. But there are so – this is a 
problem which policy can have such an impact on. And there was a great article, and I'm sorry I didn't know who wrote it, about uh, comparing um, the fire response to what the Dutch have done around sea level rise and the Dutch have done around just the fact that it's a low-lying country in a time when the storms are worse and the sea is rising. And the Dutch government, I mean, it's 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 an existential threat to the Netherlands. And there has been this huge investment in amelioration and ways to just spend some money to make it safer. You know that there's going to be damage, but let's make it safer. Let's, you know, avoid losing as much property as we can. Let's avoid losing life. And let's make those upfront investments. Um, And you have really smart people doing it. And in in the case of fire in California, there are so many policy measures that can be taken, which aren't even partisan, that could be taken that would make a difference. I mean, and housing is a great one, Emily. I mean, that is a, that is a key one. It's but urban density is one cure for this. Not because it wouldn't it would cause not fires not to happen. It would just mean that people weren't being affected as badly by these fires and they weren't losing property in the way they're losing property. But also the policies about removing flammable materials from around homes, like requiring people to use less flammable materials in home construction, removal of brush and dead trees. There's all sorts of things which are, which are a matter of state, local policy that can make a huge difference. And so people should freaking do it. It's just crazy not to. But there's this, this resistance to government action, um, which has pervaded American life and re- to regulation. And it, it's just causing us to, to do stupid things. And it's frustrating. These moments of crisis where the whole nation turns its head to watch uh, the horrible effects of the uh, – are a moment where a president, who is the one, to the extent we have a national voice, can tee up what you're talking about, David, which is uh, the world has convened, or at least the United States has convened in this moment. And so a policy response, or at least convening people to come up with a policy response, is one of the powers a president has. And that's why – you know, the president talking about raking in Finland was was uh, obviously off the mark by what he actually said. But also the response to it was kind of was nuts. I mean, people just made fun of him and the press like fact checked whether they use rakes in Finland. And the moment w- wasn't used to talk about what you're talking about, to talk about obviously what the big the actual difference is in Finland, which is it's a lot colder and wetter there than in California. And that's why it was an absurd analogy, not whether they actually use rakes or not, which was the subject of some of the fact checks, whether they actually use rakes or not, which which suggests to me that the fact checkers had totally missed the entire point. And it's, you know, they can make fun of the president, but when the people doing the fact checking miss the point of the why the analogy break down, breaks down, and by missing the point, miss an opportunity to, to educate people about actually what happened, then that's us. That's also, so also, it's a, also, there's a, in Finland, there's this tremendous private-public partnership around this so that pilots... All the people oh, yeah. who fly, right. like, are, are taught to First be on the lookout yeah. to unlock the lookout for fires, and so they catch fires much earlier. I mean, yeah, you know, I was thinking about this this morning. Part of me appreciates the moments of humor that come out of Trump's more ridiculous statements. Like suddenly, there's a meme of a rake and a fire, and everyone's like taking a break. But there's also something like deadeningly nihilistic about it, right? right? It's like you're not thinking about all the actual policy matters or choices you were just talking about, right? You're not using it as an uh, opportunity to educate. You're just like mocking in this way that doesn't really teach anyone anything. And it becomes this total, as usual, like long cul-de-sac of distraction where like that's what gets attention because it's really easy to glom onto. 
I don't know what to do about that. Complaining about it makes me feel humorless and like miserly. Do you all think, I mean, who the hell knows, but there there are a thousand people on this list and Clara Jeffrey, our, our uh, colleague, the editor of Mother Jones, um, former colleague of mine, beloved colleague of mine, uh, noted that if there were a thousand people missing in the East Coast, every minute of the day would be focused on this issue. The fact that it's out in the West and that it's more a kind of remote community has made people blase about it. Do you think there's anything to that? And also, do you do, do you think it's also that people think, oh, there aren't really a thousand people who are going to die in this fire? That's just, it's just somebody's misinterpreted something. Well, the, the coverage of it has been a little uneven. Uh, I mean, I must say, CBS, we got a lot of people out there. Uh, so, um, but I, 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 I think she, there's probably something to what she's saying. I mean, there's undoubtedly something to what she's saying. The East Coast versus West Coast uh, media focus issue is pretty well, well established. But I think there, based on what I've read, there is a thousand people doesn't mean a thousand. There are a lot of people based on the reporting I've read. I haven't done any actual reporting myself, but uh, that there are people who are on the list who don't even know they're on the list and that it's according to one official I read who said basically they put anybody anybody who calls 911 and says I can't find Joe or Uncle Sam Uncle Sam gets put on the list this is now I'm now speaking metaphorically uh, Uncle Sam gets put on the list <laughs> Uncle Sam, and, weirdly Uncle Sam is on the list yeah uh, he is uh, kind of MIA yeah. <laughs> Uncle Sam gets put on uh, put on the list and then Uncle Sam doesn't know he's on the list and he doesn't go check the list and so he remains on the list and and once I found Uncle Sam I don't call back up and say hey take him off the list so right the list is created to be over inclusive and right. I think that's Thank part you. of what's going on we that's don't a actually better. think yeah. there are a thousand people who are but, missing but what there but will be sure there is. will be yeah, there are yeah, a lot of people zero. who are missing and dead, and that is horrible. I mean, yeah, I'm sure John and Clara are right about West versus East Coast. I think there's also just this period of drip, drip, unknown information um, that confuses the media about how uh, seriously to treat it. Just one small story, which actually has really nothing to do with the fires themselves that I found so outrageous. There's There have been stories which are, which are supposed to be heartwarming about prison california prison inmates fighting these fires and being paid a dollar a day to do it and of course and you know we i thank them for their service and i'm sure they're 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 doing great work and it's 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 dangerous and risky and but there (laughs) there was this outrageous story about the fact that if you are a california prisoner you come out of prison and you've had this experience fighting fires you can't actually get a job as a firefighter because most firefighters in california have to be trained as emts and if you have a prison record, it's very hard to get. You're basically barred from getting an EMT license as a as a former felon, and so then you can't become a firefighter. So even though you have this useful skill that you have learned serving the public, you're then barred. What a waste of human capacity! What a waste of goodwill! It's really infuriating. There's a great magazine piece in my very own New York Times magazine about exactly this issue by Jamie Lowe. It's called The Incarcerated Women Who Fight California's Wildfires. And it's about them as human beings and, you know, what it would take, which is not very much, to change this whole picture so that, you know, inmates are being trained for something, um, women who are in prison are being trained for something that then they have as a marketable skill when they get out. I I did not read that story, but as Part of it, the unseemly power of these 
public employee unions, particularly firefighter and police unions, which are just grotesquely powerful and even more so in California than in other places? I don't which, remember. Which is a bar. I mean, they serve as this bar. It's this they, professional bar. I mean, it's it's the whole way in which credentialing just prevents people from entering professions. Now, there are really good reasons. Obviously, there are. you can imagine there are kinds of people who who should not be allowed to get a firefighter license. If you are an arsonist, you know. Okay, be, but that is a that small is, number of that's a very total. small number Let's of people. Let's be very right. clear, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, one other angle to this, which is interesting to me, just because uh, I'm interested and only and, and not that knowledgeable about, but the way in which private industry has to make decisions and claims based on uh, climate change science in a way that if governments aren't acting, private industry has to. So PG&E uh, is being yeah. sued by 400 or more people who say basically they should have shut the power off when the conditions got to this tinderbox yep. level. And they said, well, they, they, the conditions didn't meet our normal standards. Well, they're facing liability for uh, this destruction. Uh, and I wonder how that will, it's hammered their stock, which is down like almost half. Yeah, because they may not be able to cover the Right, gap, the insurance right? won't yeah. be able to cover the gap. So what What in the future will, oh, any company that worries about liability in California uh, for, for potentially starting or contributing to the start of a fire, how they have to uh, calculate that into their business model, particularly yeah. PG&E. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I don't have any knowledge about PG&E and I'm no doubt they're voracious and rapacious and terrible in all kinds of ways but it does seem pretty unfair. I mean these are these are conditions that are beyond the control of PG&E and PG&E's lo- obligation as a the public utility in that area is to provide people with power and to provide businesses with power and it's it's a kind of damned if you do damned if you don't. Now and and it's one of these situations where from what I've seen is that PG&E's lines and are is are causing fires at this that never happened a generation ago it's not that they suddenly their equipment is is shoddy it's just that the conditions are terrible and you know they can't on their own bury all the power lines in california it costs prohibitively huge amount of money and so it's it does seem does seem unfair to make them the liable party here Hey, Slate listeners, I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, And Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. Facebook, worse than even we ever thought. We've Impossible. Been, we've been Facebook skeptics here at GabFest Central. At least Emily and I have been Facebook skeptics. I don't, I'm not sure of John's policy on Facebook uh, for a while. And last week, the last few weeks have brought a series of stories that highlight just 
how vastly its self-presentation differs from its actuality. There have been a number of bad stories in the past few years, obviously, the evidence that Russian trolls pervaded Facebook throughout the 2016 campaign, the shame of Cambridge Analytica and the, the way that Facebook allowed it to uh, take all kinds of data that shouldn't have been public and or shouldn't have been shared with it and use that to possibly manipulate uh, campaigns. Uh, now comes a damning New York Times investigation by some of Emily's colleagues that shows that the company, upon learning about the Russian manipulation, upon learning about the, the kind of ways in which Facebook was being put to use in the election campaign, that the company behaved in really poor ways. What did, what did your colleagues at the Times find, Emily, and why was it so depressing? Well, confronted with information from Alex Stamos and his team, um, Stamos was like the head of security of Facebook at the time. And he had basically on his own taken a team to really investigate the Russian interference in postings because nobody else was doing it and seemed to want to know. And also at Facebook after Mark Zuckerberg said following the election that he thought it was crazy to imagine that these political posts on on his own site could have affected the election. People at Facebook were like, wait a second, this was happening. And so they set out to prove it. And at a moment when the Facebook board was being briefed and got upset and said, wait a second, why didn't you tell us about this earlier? This is a huge deal. We need to address it. It seems that Charles Amberg um, yelled at Alex Stamos and got angry about having been blindsided, supposedly, as opposed to hearing this information and taking in the substance of it and saying, oh, my God, this company is a force for destruction in a way that Zuckerberg and I didn't understand. And now we're going to go and deal with it. And the thing about this report is it's both um, incredibly revealing and yet in its own way, not surprising. Like if you are the people at the head of that company, you have an enormous amount invested in seeing it as a force of good in the world. Um, We've seen so many indications from Zuckerberg and Sandberg that they just have drunk that Kool-Aid. And it's it's a larger Silicon Valley phenomenon, right? They're like particularly noticeable and um, important in their manifestation of it. But my experience of reporting in Silicon Valley is lots of people are drinking that Kool-Aid. So then when it turns out not to be true, it's like fundamentally undermining to one's whole identity to imagine that actually this um, this institution, this company was doing bad things all along and you didn't recognize it and you didn't stop it and you kind of didn't care about it or signal to anyone that was of importance. Um, and so I think that this time story shows Sandberg and Zuckerberg continuing in that line and doing some nefarious things. I mean, hiring this like, you know, kind of secretive political opposition ad firm or whatever public relations firm to start putting seeding fake posts and like blaming George Soros. I mean, to have these two Jewish corporate leaders out there, like adding to the anti-Semitic attacks that use George Soros as like it's pinata. I just, that really made me and I think a lot of other people um, kind of nauseous. And so we're just seeing this internal picture of a corporation that is enormously powerful and is not responsible in its use of power. One of the things that's always been a disconnect is between the public outrage about Facebook and their responses, which have always seemed to kind of miss the what people need. So, you know, in any of these instances where somebody's apology just doesn't meet the moment, theirs have always felt 
just insufficient. And so when the Times piece came out, the idea that they were behind the scenes going on the offense to try to create. And the reason, as I understand it, these uh, the, the kind of connection to George Soros was a part of the strategy was to basically and it's not unlike what some politicians uh, do, which is to discredit the criticism as having been ginned up. So, in other words, this big thing everybody's making a big concern about, it's it's really ginned up. And so don't be so concerned about it, which affirms the underlying skepticism people may have had that they didn't take the criticism seriously in the first place. Uh, and so and then now in the response to the New York Times story, uh, Cheryl Sandberg in her in an interview she did with Nora O'Donnell was basically, basically said, I had zero to do with any of this, which is so implausible. And if it were true, it would be upsetting because that was her job. Right. There you go. That's the, you've just. Yeah. The, the contrast between their self-presentation, the hacker utopian self-presentation and the dingy, trite reality of how they behave is so extraordinary. I mean, you don't expect you don't expect, uh, you know, Exxon Mobil to, you know, to to have utopian uh, hoo-ha coming out of their uh, their pie hole. They think they you know, they're a big, gigantic company and they're going to protect their interests. You, you're not surprised if you learn that. ExxonMobil or com- Company X is using uh, a crisis PR company to discredit its opponents. Okay, that's that's a standard tactic. It is that it is that contrast that's so galling, and the and the 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 hypocrisy of it is so maddening. I mean, they hired Schumer's daughter. That's another one that I love. They hired Chuck Schumer's daughter to 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 spin for them. Uh, Sandberg Sandberg personally worked over Amy Klobuchar. Uh, using some of her lean-in credibility, and got her to go kind of quiet, yeah. at least in her yeah. Facebook posts, right? And, and yeah, and uh, John, your point about their apologies is such a good one. They're always apologizing for stuff, and it's always a. It's just not. Um, it's it's words without meaning. So there, and and nothing seems to change afterwards. There's this amazing little Vice uh, episode where Vice posed. So they have a they have a functionality on Facebook where you can buy ads brought to you sponsored by or like i'm trying to remember the the term it's basically it's to so you would identify the ad as coming from legitimate source and so vice posed as every single senator they just pretended to be all the senators and bought a bunch of ads pretending to be that senator facebook didn't check they didn't see if it was actually the senator they didn't care they just let you know so you could go and buy an ad pretending to be lindsey graham and you know, make any wild accusation you want to make or make any claim you want to make. And, and it would probably all Facebook would, would, would let it through. No, Facebook said, oh, no, they all, you know, they they, they said, oh, this didn't meet our standards. We, we made a mistake. They're so always a mistake. making a hundred, a mistake. They're always not making, making a mistake. standards yeah. and then yeah. not doing anything and not about doing anything. it that we know. Yeah. This, yeah. Yeah. This yeah. And, and sorry, one, one other one other point. Sorry. Well, I just just to get this point out and then I'll shut up is uh, Kevin Roos, the journalist is between a, Join God's work where he's been tracking what are the most popular Facebook posts on particular subjects. And what he has shown consistently is – so Facebook has made such a big deal about how we're going to get, you know, more honorable sources, more credible sources. Uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to make sure that the fake news isn't circulating. And Bruce points out that on any given story, if you look, six, eight, nine of the top ten stories are going to be extremely right-wing – often conspiratorial sometimes sometimes it's just right-wing media spin on something but it's often conspiratorial spin on it so for all that they've talked about oh we're 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 cleaning up the platform actually the stuff that continues to be most popular that they continue to circulate most broadly is the crap and 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 there's a there's a wonderful washington post story by eli saslow the brilliant reporter 
about a site called, what is it called? Um, a Facebook site called America's Last Line of Defense, which is literally a liberal parody site set up by a guy just to troll right-wingers. And he'd ma- he would make up stories that would be like, Hillary Clinton dies in secret overseas mission to smudge- smuggle more refugees into America. And he would write these fake stories. And they, they're hugely popular because conservative Yeah, it didn't paranoid. work as a parody, huh? Yeah, don't re- recognize <laughs> parody and circulate it widely. And it just, just propagates these lies. And has Facebook, you know, has Facebook cracked down on it? Has Facebook, you know, said, oh, the, you know, this stuff is illegit or this, this is having a baleful effect? No, no, they don't give a shit. They don't care. I was so really, what, sorry. Well, I just wonder whether marketers at some point will start to say, no, we don't want to be associated with that world or whether they are just too gargantuan for marketers to leave and whether anybody could create a social platform, social networking platform that that lacked some of the either public relations uh, uh, problems that Facebook has faced or that just in general solves for the vinegariness of social media. I don't know if that's even possible, but uh, it seems like that that opportunity is becoming is more and more happening. One other, th- one other thing about this. Well, Instagram, I actually think, has some of that role. Instagram is a much sweeter platform. Yes. Instagram owned by, lacks it. Owned by Facebook. Owned by Facebook. And Facebook's done a great job yeah. of protecting it. And Although the, or, the, I don't know. the I mean, founders of Instagram well. don't. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That's, agree, sure. Sorry, I shouldn't say They that. left. But um, one other thing about the apologies is, felt, uh, is that often I felt like the responses that were couched as apologies were actually just marketing statements so they would say we're really taking uh you know we're really focusing on security and the focus on pace and growing our our uh, user base that maybe caused us to overlook some of these security problems before we're not doing that we're focusing now on user engagement which felt like a marketing pitch like they have they have their moment that everybody's focusing on them they know they got to make an apology but then they like tack on like here's the fun part of Facebook we're focusing on now. So keep being involved, and that so that seemed to me to kind of undermine the authenticity of some of those apologies as well. I was really struck by um, something my colleague Nick Confessori said, which is that you know a century ago Upton Sinclair exposed this like totally horrifying nature of you know meat marketing and. In this, the jungle. And right, in the jungle, in his like famous muckraking book about American factories and food production. And before that, we thought of these as I guess I wasn't there, but like <laughs> these were assumed to be kind of virtuous or at least neutral, morally neutral companies. And Facebook is having that kind of moment. And we're all having a moment of realizing that social media, which presented itself as this, you know, Silicon Valley like making the world better that that's not true it's not and it and what happened after the jungle was that the food industry got regulated and that is what facebook is desperately trying to stave off and what is enormously needed right now so when i read the facebook is talking about creating some independent quote you know court that is going to be deciding what can be posted and not it does not reassure me it is time for the government to come in and set some limits and think about also whether this company needs to have some antitrust changes made to it also. I mean, maybe Facebook should not own Instagram and WhatsApp and Snapchat and, yeah, yuck. So I don't know if this is where you were we, we were about to say, David, about the jungle, but uh, my favorite line from yes, that was... I know you're Sinclair's, about to say. Yes, I wrote a book to hit people in the heart and I hit him in the stomach because he was trying to raise awareness about Yurgis, who works, I think that was his name, uh, who worked in, you know, these awful conditions and people... 
didn't care so much about him. They cared about the food that was coming to them and whether it was healthy. But this leads to another question I have about Facebook from a business standpoint, which is, you know, what kind of what do people want from social media? And has the underlying when this all first started happening, I thought, yeah, people don't like whatever bad things are happening to Facebook, but ultimately like they, they want to connect and they want to be, you know, I want to check out what's happening with my uh, nephews and, and how they they're want to post stuff and right. have their voices heard. Right. Which and, we should all sympathize with. Yes. We're journalists. Right. We exactly. So I kind of thought that that poll would continue, that people would, would, would say, yeah, I don't like this stuff over here, but gosh, I really enjoy being able to like see pictures of McLean, Virginia in the 1970s when I grew up and there's really no other place I can go to for that. So I wonder from a user standpoint, I know a lot of people say like, I'm never going on back on Facebook, but I feel like my Facebook feed is still pretty well populated with all of that stuff and that people are still using it. You know what to me is weird though, John? Well, yes, I think a lot of people still do use it and especially people who are older. I don't know if you guys remember. That's why it's important that they own these other services where the youth are. Yes, the youth. About 10 years ago or more when I was editor of Slate, I assigned Emily Yaffe to write a story which was called, I think the headline was 50. Facebook and 50-something, where she was then 50 or 51 or something and went on Facebook. And the idea was, oh, my God, it's so funny. How funny would it be to be an old person on Facebook? And now, of course, Facebook has become a platform for old people. But I do think that that it is really – I mean, people tend to lump all these services together. They tend to say, you know, put 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 them all, oh, it's the social media has this detrimental effect and, oh, Twitter, oh, Google – Facebook, Instagram, but it really is so much worse with Facebook. I Twitter, there's lots of problems with Twitter, and I can I can absolutely see why people wouldn't want to be on it. But sorry, I just banged. I was so excited, I just banged a chair. Forgive that noise. Uh, I, but at the same time, like Twitter is more or less does what you expect it to do. It is it is always I've always understood it. It it behaves in the way that that it. Twitter's indefensible. I don't know what you're talking about. It, Twitter does a terrible job of monitoring its content. It doesn't have, you know, real name I, requirements, which makes it like I, a total trash yeah. heap. It may behave as you expect it to, and you have a thick skin, but I don't think that we can okay, argue that Twitter that, is any better. That, uh, it's smaller. Right. It has that going maybe that it. Maybe it's all that it's, it's smaller. And journal, for journalists, it's catnip because we're all on there like gossiping and watching each other. But I don't think it's like well, a I better guess I just site for a lot I, of people. I don't think it does the, the kind of pervasive damage that Facebook does. I don't think Google does. I don't think Instagram does. WhatsApp I don't know enough about. Um, I don't think pin- is like Pinterest or, or Snapchat in does. other countries, like including in Brazil, by having these like mass group chats that spread totally false and like mm. inciting to violence information. Um, so your view is that all social media are bad? No, I don't. I'm. I. I feel some hope about Instagram. I think there's something about the more visual nature of it that seems to make it like. I don't know, a little oh, it'll nicer. Be ru- it'll be ruined but soon yeah, enough. it does seem like there is a way in which these things go toward the lowest common denominator. I don't know. I'd like to think otherwise. I'm all for connecting. I, uh, as an antisocial person, am not all for connecting and basically would tell all of you that this was predictable uh, years ago. Right. Well, that's interesting. So say more about that because what? You feel like <laughs> you don't want to be bombarded by Well, no, it's not true because I do, I no, I that was a that was a, a stupid detour. I guess what I was wondering is whether this is a solvable problem for Facebook. Uh, so they they can apologize and apologize and hire billions of people to monitor this and that and the other thing, but it seems to me that the only solution 
to to restoring what it once was is to find and i know they're searching madly for this some new great reason for everybody to want to be on it and and generate a good feeling about being on it because are you really going to get credit if you stop all the bad stuff from happening people you know maybe there won't be so many stories that you hear in the news and maybe 10 years down the road people will say oh they had that rough patch but now you know they've they've sort of survived but to regain its place that it once had it seems to me it's got to it's got two problems it's got to kind of put out this uh, pro- uh, solve this problem, and then the other big problem is how do you create meaningful engagement in a in a world of so many competitors um, uh, with interesting and fascinating content? That's that's a super hard thing to do. But the putting out the solving the problem is doable. I mean, it would take money and it would take a willingness to censor and regulate speech. Absolutely. But those things are attainable. Like, you don't have to have the Kevin Roos list of, you know, wildly circulating conspiracy theory posts every week. That is not a necessary feature. I guess what I feel like is, this is like when we installed new windows in our house. Um, We spent all this money installing the new windows in our house and you basically can't, the house looks exactly the same, right? I mean, it helps on the energy bills a little bit, but it's basically fixing these problems are just a massive, massive sunk cost for which they will get some credit, but which they will not overcome the deficit they're in as a result of all these problems and the and the odor that is now attached to 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 Facebook. Well, I mean, that's, I'm not, I'm not, it's not a disagreement with what you're saying. I just think that's their though, condition. Right? Totally, like, totally. No, no, no. I'm just saying, like the, the yes, I, I guess I'm just trying to to line up all the problems they face and see whether, you know, they're what situation uh, they're what they're in. And, and I think. although when you were talking before about advertisers and, you know, whether people are going to start to walk away, solving the problems yes. could do a lot to reassure advertisers. So in terms of That's the bottom line, That's an that point. does matter a right. lot. That's an excellent point. Let's go to cocktail chatter when you're uh, preparing for Thanksgiving with a really, really stiff mulled wine. There can be such a thing as a stiff mulled wine. Or in my house, it's usually a sherry, and you're having a sherry. What will you be chattering about, Emily the Baz? I am writing a piece right now about the census, and maybe we will actually make the census into a whole topic in the coming weeks. Absolutely. Um, hey, I'm so excited hey. to talk about this. Count, what, me, count me in. Count John in. Thank you. Um, but I... Just as a preliminary matter, I went to the trial in Manhattan that was taking place last week about the census. And... What I came away with, so this was mostly a super boring day that I spent because it was this very technical testimony about statistics and how the census is put together and like the word coefficient and other terms that I like barely remember from math and probably never fully understood anyway. And yet I came away... David is pretending to go to sleep right now. I came away feeling so... I was just stretching. (laughs) I was enjoying your riff. I came away feeling so reassured and kind of perversely moved by the dedication of our federal bureaucracy. Like, here are these teams of people doing these super important tasks that nobody appreciates. Like, the census is one of those things that, you know, we take for granted. We think of it as just a film to fill, form to fill out. Actually, it's like a super important underpinning of our democracy, which is under threat. And these folks who, you know, are have dedicated their careers to making this huge apparatus of federal government functional um 
are explaining all the work they do. And there was just this something about it that, you know, I came away thinking like, wow, this is an amazing feat. And I don't know if I'm going to succeed in conveying that as a writer, but like, I really need to try. Um, Anyway, so let's talk more about the census. But in the meantime, let's give thanks for the thanks for the census um, on Thanksgiving. Yeah, no, that's, that's very good. That's very good. Um, John. I like that. What is your chatter? My chatter is totally frivolous. Uh, Snoop Dogg, you may be familiar with his work. Wait, uh, who is he? <laughs> he's, Calvin uh, Burtis. JK. He, uh, we all think about him during the Thanksgiving season, but uh, but more to the point, recently he, was, um, he got a Hollywood uh, star on the Walk of Fame, and I'd just like to read you a passage from his... Uh, from his remarks at the, um, at the whatever, what do you do? The laying of the star, the unveiling of the star. Uh, he said, I want to thank me for believing in me. I want to thank me for doing all this hard work. I want to thank me for having no days off. I want to thank me for never quitting. I want to thank me for always being a giver and trying to give more than I receive. I want to thank me for trying to do more right than wrong. I want to thank me for just being me at all times. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that tickled me, but uh, it did. And you should watch the video of it because um, uh, it's funny. Do, it is true that you don't get a day off from yourself. That is definitely one of the problems with life. Yeah, it'd be nice to it'd be nice to have a day off, a weekend from yourself. Right. That well, don't is you, so true. It, oh don't my you god! Think that's more why, than a weekend. I want like a long vacation for myself. So, don't you think that's why people engage in? Uh, either go to Renaissance fairs and dress up like um, elves and wizards or engage in all kinds of other uh, behaviors that l- literally allow them to try to escape from themselves by creating of a difference. Yeah, and why do, do people drink? That's like why they use drugs. But, but yeah. I don't know that drinking... Really? Because yeah. I, 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 I mean, yes, the just escaping into a book is great. I mean, I, I find that uh, I have a... My escape velocity from a book is much easier than it used to be. You know, I find that it, unless a book really grabs me, I'm... I'm that you know, is a depressing feature yeah, of our modern world. Uh, but, and yet, it is so crucial to embody some, like, interesting sure. fictional narrative. Oh, my God. Right? Either, yes, or you become just a howling um, void. But, so, I guess my question is whether in our current moment, whether people are... It's not just drinking. You've got to have a more immersive experience and whether people seek that out more because people want an, uh, an escape from themselves. I don't know. How would you quantify that? I don't know. I don't know. The Atlantic uh, writes that nobody's having sex anymore, so uh, they're not doing it that That reason. was about kids. That was not about us. That I thought was it was about, about adults, too. Oh. Yeah, I thought it was... Le- a- there was less sex for adults, but it was more a kind of generational piece, wasn't it? It was about 20-something. Yeah, but it's... Well, it's, but that's sort of weirdly about an epidemic of loneliness where, in fact, people are unable to escape themselves because they are alone. Right. I felt on the safe side of the generational dividing line as I Did read you? that piece. Well, I felt worried about my children, but I was like, right. okay, well, that's this Emily, is I think this is also, I think, I would also say that this is something you know or you don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's, <laughs> I don't think it's, it's yeah. not a group you, solution. And now we're at the moment of TMI. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. I am I think withdra- we're retreating yeah. I think you made a family admission you may or may not have wanted to make. Uh-huh. Thanks. Um, I'll, I'll take us. I'm going to take us back to safety with my chatter, which is about Michael Bloomberg, which is the least. Oh God! <laughs> who, 
Or except for me, it's the least sexual. It's the least sexual shout out. He's your male crush, so it's actually perfect. You can either think about baseball or Michael Bloomberg. Close your eyes and think of Michael Bloomberg. <laughs> You're the um, only one in America. It's uh, he's we all, your personal write-in candidate for life. We all have we all have our own special turn-ons, Emily. Don't don't <laughs> shit on mine. Okay, that's uh, fine. Go ahead. <laughs> Tell us more. Um, it begins. He just as, gave a as it, al- as it of always money does. To Johns yes. Hopkins. As it always does with Michael Bloomberg in pajamas. Um, no, Mike, Michael Bloomberg just donated $1.8 billion to Johns Hopkins uh, to guarantee need-blind admissions there. It's the largest university donation ever made, apparently, which is great. That's fine. You know I'm a big Michael Bloomberg fan. No, There's no surprises there. But it did put into focus for me um, just how pointless and terrible everything is. So this is a classic example of something where there's a billionaire who's putting a Band-Aid on something for one college that he happens to love. And what if he had to, to pay $1.8 billion in taxes and yes. then that money was distributed to low-income people who want to go to lots of colleges and maybe can't get Would into Would you like John's to do my chatter? Would no, you like my chatter? but I had the exact same thought about it last night. Yeah. It's outrageous that, that, that what we're doing is counting on rich people to sort of decide, oh, well, out of the goodness of my heart, I'm going to help out a a rich, already rich college that I want to help out rather than as that Emily I went to. Just, can I, just said. Can I ask then what, and maybe we should make, find some way to think about this more systematically, but because uh, you could imagine a situation in which giving $1.8 billion to the federal government might not be the most efficient use of that money. So could you create a system whereby, let's say I have a billion dollars and you all visit me on my island um, and we want to do with that billion dollars the most efficient and useful thing, let's say just in the education area. Like, Surely it would go to community colleges or to public universities, right? Or that you would cost out how to have the most impact on that's what blind admissions well, at private and universities. Ha- and could you convene people who could figure out what Definitely. to do with the money? That, that is would like be a but, big, wait, but, really but, interesting uh, well, But also, problem. no, sure, that's an interesting problem. And I, I think that is basically what the Gates Foundation has done to their yeah. credit. I think the Gates Foundation is doing that on a global scale. So they looked at what are the what are the problems, malaria being a great example, which caused the most suffering and lost productivity and lost life and lost pleasure. Right. And malaria is one. And so let's try to tackle that. So huzzah to them. But that doesn't go to Emily's point. Of course, the government is going to be less efficient. But, but there's something deeply wrong with a world in which all the wealth is accumulating to a few people who get to make that decision. Sure. Like it's, it, it actually... And, and and government is not that inefficient. Government, yeah, uh, there are certain things that government does much better than anybody else because they are the only ones who can apply that much scale. They're yeah. the only ones who can I build was, those highways. Well, I, I, the I, only I, ones who can. I hijacked your point. I was sorry. I was trying to go off and make a, and ask a separate question, which which I'm sorry because it kind of no, stepped no, on your point. No, no. I think those are both valid and interesting thoughts, right? If you had a billion dollars and you had a priority, which was not the military, so you didn't want half your tax dollars to go to the military or whatever the giant percentages and you had a problem you wanted to solve like access to college education for low-income people which is a huge issue what would you do yeah you, how would there you are best things distribute to it? do and i am all for that i like think it's hugely important but i'm pretty sure that giving all of it to johns hopkins is yeah, not yeah, yeah, the yeah, most yeah. efficient no, no. manner that's right no i'm not uh, yeah, and i wouldn't suggest that i guess i was just wondering is if you could imagine uh, i don't know are there a lot of billionaires like michael bloomberg who 
would think giving it away. Oh, by the way, you also want to create a system where you get the credit for it, right? You don't get credit for paying your taxes so much. So could you create a situation where uh, for the billionaires out there who want to do good, that and maybe the Gates Foundation is basically it, that that is the, the how easy would it be to find a way to most effectively channel that money? Maybe you have Michael Bloomberg scholarships all over the country at different schools as opposed to like every building at Johns Hopkins yeah. is named after Michael Bloomberg. Yeah. Or they or why not just call it Johns Bloomberg or, uh, you know, Johns Hopkins Bloomberg. <laughs> Bloomberg University. It'll be Bloomberg University by the time we're done, I bet. Maybe after his death. Can they finally uh, put the apostrophe in the Johns Hopkins, by the way? Just I now they've got John. all this I'm kidding. You're just I'm kidding. kidding. But don't you feel like it's one of those terms that you're so proud of yourself when you say correctly? Like, like attorneys, attorneys general. general. <laughs> you're like, I'm an educated person. I wrote attorneys general wrong the other day. Yeah. And then I was slightly like mortified, but then thought, this is just ridiculous. Yeah. Okay. 1.7 of the 1.8 is going to teach people how to use data correctly in the plural. <laughs> uh, we also have a listener shout out this week because you guys continue to tweet great chatters to us at, at Slate Gabfest and email us at gabfest at slate.com with your excellent ideas for cocktail chatter. And this week's chatter comes from Jonathan Bode at J Bode, B A U D E, an article in Thrillist by Kevin Alexander, which is headlined I found the best burger place in America and then I killed it. And it's a story about uh, food critic who named a, a burger at a, at a gritty joint in Portland, the best burger in America. And this restaurant then was overwhelmed and just went downhill and became miserable to work there, became miserable to go there. The staff became unpleasant to people. There's actually some ambiguity about whether the Alexander article was in fact the responsible agent here, that the restaurant may have actually had problems which were totally independent of being named the best burger in America. But it's a really interesting piece about the quest for authenticity, authentic experience, and how much people in the Instagram age, how much people want to make a checkbox, make a bucket list of, oh, I ate the best burger in America, and the the complexity of that. So check out the story in Thrillist, I Found the Best Burger in America. That is our show for today. The GapFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank, who is visiting in Washington, D.C. today, which is so exciting for me. Jocelyn has grown four inches taller since she's moved to the Midwest. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. You should follow us on Twitter at SlateGapFest, and you should tweet conundrums to us and also email conundrums to us at GapFest at Slate.com and come to our conundrum show on December 12th in New York. Tickets at Slate.com slash live for Emily Bazelon. And John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Have a really happy Thanksgiving, and we'll talk to you next week. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.